0: Welcome to episode two of the second season of the Dorothy L. Sayers podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Scholl, and today we've got a fun little topic, how not to ask questions. In the course of exploring this, we'll get some lovely tips for conversation and possibly even philosophy. It's going to be great, so let's get started. On Asking Bad Questions This isn't the title of any Sayers essays that I know of. I wish it were, because we have all heard this statement, There are no bad questions. And in a way, it's true. If you don't know something important, even if it seems obvious to everyone else, you really need to ask about it. But we all know there are bad questions. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is bad questions. What a great topic, huh? So, first, there are questions that show that you haven't been paying attention. The doctor has just spent 15 minutes explaining to you a new diet plan, and you ask him to repeat it because you were looking at your phone. That's a bad question. Second, there are inappropriate questions. Now, these fall, in my mind, into two camps. Those that shouldn't be asked ever, by you anyway, and those that should not be asked at that time. The first camp is when you ask a woman if she's pregnant, or what she weighs, or what her income is. Actually, there are a lot of inappropriate questions to ask a woman. The second is when you have a question that is not in itself inappropriate, but for some reason it's bad to ask it when you want to ask it. One time in college, I was in a Bible survey class, the kind that you need to take at any Christian college. It comes in two parts, the highlight reel of the Old Testament for one semester, the highlight reel of the New Testament for another semester. Anyway, the professor was saying something about a C rating people, starting with P, who were causing the Israelites some trouble. I was connecting the dots that shouldn't have been connected and formulated this brilliant earth-shattering conclusion. The Pharisees were in the Old Testament. They were the same ones that David kept fighting wow, a military background for this intellectual class of individuals that Jesus was arguing with. I had my hand raised, ready to interrupt the professor with his this uh, question of mine that was actually a stunning insight. But my guardian angel, or the professor's guardian angel, must have given him a blind spot because he never called on me. And then I realized that he had, of course, been talking about the Philistines, not the Pharisees. Now, I needed to figure that out, but... I'm so grateful I didn't ask it when I asked it. Whatever small reputation I had cultivated as a smart kid would have been crushed, and it was very small. Okay, but another version of inappropriate questions are the questions to which you really need to know the answer, but you're the only one who needs to know the answer. This is when you're in a business meeting and you realize that the boss just scheduled your team to work on your vacation. You usually don't blurt out that question. Hey, why can't wait my vacation? because it doesn't affect anybody else. It just affects you. So you save that for another time. Third, and I promise I can get any to Sayers, are those questions that nitpick at a topic and miss its substance. Here's another educational example, but really it applies to any conversation. The teacher has just been explaining the psychology of Hamlet and how fear can cause us to, quote, lose the name of action. This is at the end of that famous to be or not to be soliloquy. And the student asks, do actions have names? And then the whole class wants to talk about whether actions have names, and they've missed the point of the whole speech about fear and psychology. Or your friend is celebrating a new brand of coffee that he found. It's affordable, and it's responsibly sourced, and tasty, and available at your local grocery store. And you say, yeah, but why do you think they spelled coffee with K on the logo? I mean, we all know that that's way off point, and it's not a very nice question. Nice question. Uh, In 1941, Sayers published The Mind of the Maker, which is a look into the creative mind, both of God and of man. This book has a main argument and a structure you can follow, but it also has a lot of discursive observations that were probably connected in Sayre's mind. Mind? Only one mind. But to me, at least, it seems sometimes to read like a collection of essays loosely linked. For example, in it, she gives a fairly in-depth analysis of her own Gaudy Night novel. You can also read about why her detective hero, Peter Whimsey, is not a Christian. There's some commentary on Charles Dickens in there, and quite a bit on the importance of free will. It all ties in, but many of the chapter chapters with proper food and clothing could grow up into their own little books. And one of these many essays in the preface has to do with questions. It is the preface, actually. I mean, the whole preface isn't about questions. Actually, it's just a paragraph, so I'm going to read it to you after I take a drink of water. Ah, fresh water. Love it. It's actually not that fresh. It's just water. Okay, we move on. It is common knowledge among school teachers that a high percentage of examination failures results from not reading the question. The candidate presumably applies his eyes to the paper, but his answer shows that he is incapable of discovering by that process what the question is. This means that he not only is slovenly minded, but in all except the most superficial sense, illiterate. Teachers further complain that they have to spend a great deal of time and energy in teaching university students what questions to ask. This indicates that the young mind experiences great difficulty in disentangling the essence of a subject from its accidents. And it is disconcertingly evident in discussions on the platform and in the press that the majority of people never learn to overcome this difficulty. Okay, let's stop there. This substance accident business is a critical part of clear thinking. We all do it. Aristotle wrote about it, but we all have been doing it for a long time and would be doing it even without him writing about it. But he did label it in categories, and I think in another work. Here's an example of substance accident situation. A couple thinks rightly, we need a dining room table. And then the discussion begins. What type of dining room table? Formal or informal? Expensive or inexpensive? Wood, metal, or plastic? And then they go forth into the world to purchase. The substance here is the dining room table. All the qualities of the table, mahogany, walnut, grandma's old one, or a new one, are its accidents. This is straightforward enough, but it's actually amazingly difficult sometimes to get to agree on the substance itself. Imagine this dialogue. Husband, we've got to stop eating on the couch. Let's buckle down and get a table. Wife, we've got a table. Our feet are resting on it right now. You know what I mean, a dining room table. We don't even have a dining room. We have a big kitchen and that sort of breakfast nook thing where all the boxes are. We could put a table there. There's a card table in the garage. Would that work? That's not a proper dining room table. Now, this is a discussion about substance. Presumably, accidents would be the next conversation if they ever move on from the substance of the dining room table. Sometimes we deliberately confuse substance and accident. When a senator makes a proposal for an interstate freeway, and we dismiss him for saying interstate instead of interstate, we are choosing to focus on an accident, probably literally an accident, of his speech rather than the substance, which is the proposal about the freeway. If we go one step further and say that he looked ugly when he said it, we have committed the fallacy of ad hominem and missed the substance of his argument by a country mile. None of us would do this knowingly in a formal speech. But we do it sometimes in regular conversation, and we're training ourselves into sloppy thinking, actually. But why? It doesn't matter that we do this. Now, I just made a, a small point about it, but uh, Sayers says this about asking or understanding questions. She's writing to um, M.L. Jax, who is the head of Department of Education at Oxford. This is a 1946, a letter uh, from volume three of her letters, page 235, if you want to look it up. Okay, she says this. Uh, if you understand words, you're not at, quote, the mercy of words, and it's capable of detecting fallacies of argument I'm not quoting this right. Hang on. Let me, okay, so here, here's what her quote says. She goes, you don't want to be at the mercy of words, incapable of detecting fallacies and argument, and ignorant of the right way to set about mastering a new subject. So in other words, you need to understand how language works uh, so that you're not at the mercy of advertisers, so that you're able to detect fallacies um, when they're presented to you, and also that you can learn something new. She also adds somewhere, I can't remember where at the moment, that we also place ourselves at the mercy of advertisers when we ourselves don't know how to use words properly. And, you know, she was in advertising, and she felt that pretty deeply. But back to questions. A question is only one half of trying to understand a thing. The other half is the answer. Sayers goes on in that same paragraph of The Mind of the Maker, quote, A third distressing phenomenon is the extreme unwillingness of the average questioner to listen to the answer a phenomenon exhibited in exaggerated form by professional interviewees on the staffs of popular journals. It is a plain fact that 99 interviews out of 100 contain more or less subtle distortions of the answers given to questions, the questions being, moreover, in many cases, wrongly conceived for the purposes of eliciting the truth. Now, here she points out the problem of loaded questions, and then, of course, ignoring the answers. She herself encountered this problem frequently. She often received questions such as, What do you think of the Church, or of the Trinity? Which is a misleading question, or at least a question that she didn't want to answer, because it didn't matter what she thought. What mattered is what the Church said. But some journalists, even when she said as much, didn't relay it. According to Sayers, such behavior, asking loaded questions, asking questions that don't speak to the substance, or not listening to the substance, or not properly listening to answers, was pandemic in the 1930s and 40s Britain. But it doesn't seem to have gotten much better. Listen Listen, to those. Listen, I've got a list of questions here that I want to read to you from Sayers in her 1947 essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. And it's kind of fun. You know, she writes this in a sort of advertising jargon, such as, um, you know, those advertising. Have you ever suffered from severe sunscreen or sunblock? <laughs> no, sunblock. Have you ever suffered from something severe? Well, try this medicine. It'll take care of it. I think that's the tone in which she wrote these questions. She says this. Have you ever, in listening to a debate among adults, been fretted by the extraordinary inability of the average debater to speak to the question or to meet and refute the arguments of the speaker on the other side? Have you ever pondered upon the extremely high incidence of irrelevant matter which crops up at committee meetings? Have you ever followed a discussion in the newspapers or elsewhere and noticed how frequently writers fail to define the terms they use? <laughs> and then, you know, the whole essay is, if you have, you need to adjust to this type of education. But of course you have heard this, reader or listener, and, uh, and I've done it. I've asked questions I shouldn't have asked. I've heard questions asked. Um, these things happen all the time today. They're what happen when human nature is not at its best. Chesterton issues a similar warning about questions on substance and questions on accidents in his 1926 essay, Why I Am a Catholic. Now, Chesterton came to Catholicism from a different branch of Christianity later in his life, and he fielded a lot of questions about it. In the essay, he says, quote, I have recently been reading a very moderate condemnation of current Catholic practices coming from America, where the condemnation is often far from moderate. It takes a form, generally speaking, of a swarm of questions, all of which I should be quite willing to answer. Only, I am vividly conscious of the big questions that are not asked, rather than of the little questions that are. Now, he sets up this complaint, strangely enough, by comparison of the Catholic Church to carpet in a building. A man can see a spot on the carpet and complain, possibly justifiably, about it. But the bigger question should be, why is there carpet in the first place? What would the world be like if there were no carpet? Likewise, one might ask a swarm of questions about some practices in the Catholic Church, but one should also ask the big questions. Possibly, what would the world be like without it? Why is it there? Uh, Speaking of big questions, smack dab in the middle of Mind of the Maker... Sayers tells this amusing anecdote about huge, seemingly unanswerable questions. The sort that, she says, any child can ask before breakfast. And she says this, And for which no neat and handy formula is provided in the parents' manuals. In much the same lighthearted manner, a cousin of my own once demanded, Mother, where has yesterday gone to? My aunt courageously undertook to find out, but by the time she returned, primed with the opinion of an eminent Oxford philosopher... The inquirer had lost interest and, like Justine Pilate, would not stay for an answer. This story actually reflects some of Chesterton's influence upon her, I think. He says something similar in his work on George Bernard Shaw. This particular comment doesn't apply to Shaw, but Chesterton says No skeptical philosopher can ask any questions that may not equally be asked by a tired child on a hot afternoon. Am I a boy? Why am I a boy? Why aren't I a chair? What is a chair? child will sometimes ask this questions of this sort for two hours. And, Chesterton goes on, the philosophers of Protestant Europe have asked them for 200 years. On a more serious note, in A Grief Observed, Lewis also exhibits a sort of confusion, or, um, I had wanted to say antipathy, but antipathy actually means dislike. It doesn't sound to me like it means dislike, but I guess that's what it means. Um... He has he has this uh, it's not even apathy because apathy is not caring anyway what's he he's talking about big questions and I think probably the the noun I want is he has perplexity or I don't know you can tell me maybe what's a good word this kind of confusion regarding huge questions now a grief observed is the most raw book Lewis ever wrote he's grieving his wife he's questioning God he's questioning and answering nearly everything. Towards the end of the book, now this is on page 69 of the Harper 1 1996 edition, if that's what you've got. And I'm being so specific here because I spent, I swear, 30 minutes trying to tack-, tack down this reference. Everybody had this quote, but they just said, Lewis said it, Ordinance of Grief Observed. And I had the book in front of me and I still couldn't find it. Anyway, it's all good now. We found it. Page 69, Harper 1 edition. Anytime you quote something online, put the footnote, put the recitation there. I'm done. Moving on. Back to Lewis. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, he says. But a rather special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze. As though he shook his head, not in refusal, but in waving the question. Like, peace, child, you don't understand. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think. All nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half of our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. And then he brings it home. He takes this huge metaphysical, possibly unanswerable set of questions down to a plane where I think Sayers and Chesterton would also be comfortable. He says, Now that I think about it, there's no practical problem before me at all. I know the two great commandments. And I better get on with them. What's left, after her death, is not a problem about anything I could do. It's all about the weights of feelings and motives and that sort of thing. It's a problem that I'm setting myself. I don't believe God set it me at all. And that can lead us to the fourth type of bad question. The sort that of questions that are natural for a time, needful for a time, possibly unanswerable in our time but we let them define us. We go on asking and asking and asking, why did this happen? What is death? Why is there pain? Perhaps there are questions that we should ask. And over time, there are questions that we should let rest and get on with what we should be doing. So those are some thoughts on bad questions, questions asked in the wrong time for the wrong reasons, questions that focus on accidents, not substance, questions that we allow to weigh us down because we don't have the answers for them. Now, I don't want to end on a bad question note, even though that's the title of this podcast. At this point, I suspect that all three, Sayers, Chesterton, and Lewis, could easily direct us to another great writer and another great question asker, St. Augustine. I mean, half of his confessions consists of questions. Questions like, if past events and future events exist, I want to know where they are. Talk about big metaphysical questions. And you know what? I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you for joining me on the Dorothy L. Sayers podcast. I've been wanting to talk about this little issue for a while, so thanks for hearing me out. For questions and comments, please email me at lindsayanneshoel at gmail.com or leave a comment on the YouTube edition of this episode. Thanks and peace be with you.